From Eyewitness News, this is Newsmakers. Welcome to Newsmakers. I'm Tim White. Ted Nisi will join me on the second half. With all the talk of beaches, or a couple of beaches, and businesses opening up in Phase 2 and Phase 3, the state's judicial system has quietly been getting back up to speed. Joining me now live from the Rhode Island State House to talk about that is the state's top prosecutor, Attorney General Peter Nerona. General, it's good to speak with you. You too, Tim. Good to see you. So before we get into the impacts of the coronavirus and what it's, and how, you know, the effects it's had on your office, I, I have to get to a major headline. We're taping this show on a Friday morning, and as we speak, General, parts of Minneapolis are on fire. Day three of riots. The actions come in response to the death of George Floyd, who died after an officer held him down with his knee on the pavement. The incident was caught on video. In general, I'm just wondering, if you saw that video, what was your reaction as the state's top prosecutor when you saw it? Concerning. I mean, first, you know, your heart goes out and breaks for Mr. Floyd and his family. But when you see a video like that, um, you know, had that happened in this jurisdiction, you know, the first call is, you know, you want to see the video yourself, you know, with the police department. Um, but look, you know, um, the law is pretty clear that when there's no need to use force, you don't use it, and you certainly don't use excessive force. And, you know, it goes without saying that that video is incredibly concerning and disturbing. So, you know, this could change by the time a lot of people watch this program, which is most people watch it on a Sunday morning, but as we speak, three days, no charges in this case. Obviously, you're not the, uh -huh. the prosecutor here, but you have dealt with use of force investigations as uh, the attorney general. And a lot of people are have. wondering, look, if that were a civilian that did that, a decision either way would probably be made pretty quickly. What are the challenges when prosecuting and investigating police use of force cases? Well, look at Rhode Island. One of the challenges is, um, is sort of the administrative procedures that departments have to go through when they're dealing with a an officer that has allegedly committed a, a misdeed or a crime. You know, I tried to divorce myself from that. We've actually had two uh, cases uh, that have been brought recently involving uh, alleged uses of excessive force. I divorce myself in making my judgments from the administrative proceedings and decide, uh, you know, whether or not the case should be charged, and then we proceed accordingly. I mean, the key there is to get all the information you need to make the charge stand up and hold in the end. You know, certainly, you know, just looking at it from afar and kind of taking off my prosecutor's hat for a minute. I mean, if you look at the case of Minnesota, from afar is you know there's strong evidence of a homicide there obviously the question becomes what kind of homicide what's the right charge you know to what extent should the other officers be charged and if so with what you really want to get that right you know from my own experience you know when I was US attorney we charged the case by complaint rather than going to the grand jury and I, I regretted it, frankly, down the road as some facts changed that I'd wished I'd had the grand jury in place to kind of get it, get it clarified in the way that I would have liked. So, you know, the, you know, the prosecutors here have a job to do, state and federal. Uh, presumably they'll do it. Um, but it's an important situation to get it right because when you bring that charge, you want to make sure uh, that you're going to get a conviction because otherwise you wouldn't be bringing the charge, obviously. And you really want to have your ducks in a row. You bring up a good point about grand juries. And I, I don't know what the situation in Minnesota is uh, with grand juries, but I know what they are in Rhode Island. Uh, th this was a, a big goal of yours, I know, General, is to get the grand jury uh, proceedings back up to speed. Uh, particularly when you're looking at um, uh, capital cases, and we'll get into that in a, in a second. But now that the grand juries are starting to convene again, 
what does that look like during a pandemic? How are you pulling that off? When you think of a yeah. grand jury, they're all sitting next to each other. What, what is the process? Yeah. Well, one of the things is, you know, across the country, not everybody, not everybody is. I mean, the U.S. Attorney's Office reached out to us last week to ask us how we were doing it because theirs hadn't been stood up yet. Um, and I don't know where they are in their process, but, you know, it's, it's a hard thing, right? You've got to make sure you can socially distance. Most grand jury rooms, if you think of it, are kind of like a classroom setting with 23 people in them, you know, including the prosecutors and the stenographers. So the way we've done it uh, in, in Rhode Island here over the last couple of weeks is to find a room that's big enough to spread everybody out. It's not the typical grand jury room. Uh, and look, the grand juries have been great about being willing to come in, notwithstanding, you know, the obvious risks that everyone faces in, uh, in this time. And so we're proceeding. And and the way we're proceeding is we're prioritizing those cases that we simply have to get to first, cases where the defendant is, is being held at the ACI and has a right to either have their case heard by a grand jury or be released. And in some instances, we want to get that grand jury decision made, whatever it is, by the grand jury before we in a, we're in a situation where the person might be released because we believe that person poses a danger to society. Yeah, that brings up my question about the capital cases. As you point out, if, if you don't get to the grand jury process in a timely manner, the, the defendant could be released uh, from custody, you know, uh, and often your prosecutors are arguing uh, that these, some of these folks are a danger to society. Is there a backlog um, with the Correct. grand jury right now? Are there any defendants at risk of being released because there's been this delay? I don't think so. You know, we were tracking that pretty carefully in March and April, and so we had a sense of, look, when do we have to have a grand jury up and running so that we avoid that problem? And we work with the Superior Court. The grand jury, as you know, Tim, is an arm of the Superior Court. So we worked closely with the Superior Court to make sure that we had that grand jury up and running before we started to run into that problem. But we were very, we were very aware of it, and, and you know, I, I think sometime in, in, in late March, early April, you know, I asked, you know, the criminal division to look, let's identify the cases we have to get done. What's the latest we can bring a grand jury back by and so the grand jury began sitting last week so you say it's an arm of uh, the superior court but it's also an investigatory tool used by your office and a lot of people watching this probably have seen Correct. our reporting on the grand jury investigation swirling around the house speaker's office i know you will not comment on that I'm not going to ask you to comment on that but is right now, you know, with the grand jury getting back up to speed, are they focused right now solely on those uh, capital cases that, that you and I were just talking about, or are they also hearing evidence in longer-term investigations? Yeah, look, you know, I guess I would describe it as they're hearing cases that are priority cases. And, you know, most of those cases are, you know, capital cases for obvious reasons, for the reasons we've discussed. But if there's a case that I believe that there, that is a priority, if we're not actively in the grand jury, we're continuing to do the grand jury work. That's important to make sure that those cases are moving uh, forward in a, in a fast, fast way. My, I view my role as attorney general as making sure that we're moving as quickly as possible on uh, everything that we do. It could be healthcare, environmental enforcement, consumer work, nursing homes is another good example. We had a meeting yesterday about that. I really want to make sure that we're moving fast because I don't think cases or matters get better with age. And, you know, in many instances, if we're trying to protect the public, the sooner we're in a position to do that, the better off everybody is. So my marching orders to the criminal division and the civil divisions is to do everything as quickly as possible. But of course, you have to prioritize. You caught my ear on the, the matter of nursing homes there. Uh, obviously, they, they can continue to lead the fatalities in this state. What was this meeting about? Who, who did you meet with and what was discussed? Yeah. 
Well, look, that, you know, it's, it's not been lost on anybody about the terrible loss in our nursing homes. And so, you know, our Medicaid fraud unit and our healthcare advocate have been tracking those situations very closely. And a lot of complaints have come into the office directly or have come into the office through uh, RIDO. And so we have a number of investigations, or matters I would call them. They're not necessarily criminal. They could be civil. They could be almost regulatory in nature. But we really want to. We really want to be sure that nursing homes, many of whom have a really are doing a great job in a really hard environment. But we want to make sure that the residents of nursing homes, assisted living centers, uh, congregate settings, are getting the kind of health care that they're entitled to. Um, under the Medicaid statute and under state law. So when we get a series of complaints, we are tracking them, investigating them, asking for records, sending letters, and if necessary, taking additional investigative steps to, to make sure that even in this COVID-19 crisis, that residents are getting uh, medical care that meets the standard of care, even in these difficult times. Have you seen an increase in these complaints uh, about nursing homes during the pandemic, General? Oh, absolutely. You know, everything from insufficient PPE, uh, you know, a lack of isolation, a lack of, of, of cleaning nursing homes. Now by, now, by saying that, I don't mean to imply that this is a widespread, widespread problem that we've necessarily confirmed, but we're getting lots of complaints. You know, so we really want to be responsible about this. And I, and I want to make it plain that, that most, if not all, nursing homes are really trying to get this right and doing a really good job. At the same time, every complaint that we get, we take very seriously, we chart it, we follow it up. We have a very strong Medicaid fraud team with a lot of personnel that's been working really hard on these cases. Uh, the General Assembly right now has their hands full dealing with the budget uh, and frankly figuring out how to legislate uh, during the pandemic. And I was wondering if you are punting uh, on any of your legislative priorities to next year, or do you have hope that something might get traction this session? You know, it's hard to say, uh, you know, Tim, we haven't had a ton of contact with the General Assembly. You know, I understand that, you know, the challenges that they face as they try to gear up and address issues at the end of the year, the budget being first and foremost. I guess if I had two things that I think have to be priorities, um, in large part, um, you know, driven, when part driven by this crisis is, you know, we've gotten a lot of consumer calls in COVID. We always get a ton. We've gotten even more now. And so our consumer protection statute needs to be strengthened. I've talked about this a lot over the last two years. That would be a priority for me. And of course, our grand jury bill uh, reporting statute is really important given the context of some of the cases that we're working on. So, you know, I hope that those things will be things that the legislature can get behind and support. Certainly, we'll continue to advocate for them. Um, and we'll see how it goes. Can you expand a little bit, if you could, on the consumer division uh, and what role it has played yeah. during, during this pandemic? Sure, so we're getting lots of complaints about things like you probably heard price gouging, travel issues where you can't get the refund you're entitled to if a uh, if a travel agency or an airline or some or a cruise line doesn't give you the refund if they cancel, you're entitled to that. Uh, all kinds of issues like that. So that's really sort of been on the consumer side. The problem with our consumer protection statute is it's really narrow. It really limits my office from going after any regulated industry. So think of things like healthcare. Think of things like uh, under that statute. Think of things like uh, utilities. Uh, think of things like um, uh, dentist office. Um, all banking, anything that is regulated by another agency, state or federal, we can't go after under our, under our statute, which is almost unique across the country. We've really got to fix that because I really believe like our office is the office that can best fight for the people of the state. It's a tool we ought to have in our toolbox. 
For this next question, I want to disclose I'm a board member of the New England First Amendment Coalition. In general, this week, the uh, NEFAC and other groups, including the ACLU, sent a letter to uh, Governor Raimondo about an executive order, many, one of the many executive orders that uh, she has signed. This one suspended certain provisions of the Access to Public Records Act, or APRA, including how long government agencies have to uh, respond to these requests. Your office has input on these ex executive orders. Do you think that it's time for that executive order to sunset? You know, I haven't talked to the governor about that, and I don't, I don't know that our staffs have spoken, which is really where those conversations take place. I think certainly there is going to be a time sooner than later where that has to happen. Uh, you know, we all know that uh, getting records together and pushing them out is a challenge. I mean, we oversee that area. We respond to APRA requests ourselves. Uh, yet at the same time, you know, transparency is really important to building, you know, confidence in government. And the sooner we get back uh, to business as usual on that front, the better off I think we'll all be. Um, just final question here for you, General. You know, police departments are telling us that they are making fewer arrests. It's been a bit quieter for them. Um, misdemeanors are handled locally, mm. uh, and felonies, they get elevated up to your office. Yeah. I, I was just wondering, are you seeing fewer sure. cases because, you know, police departments are making fewer arrests? Maybe slightly, but, but yeah, I would say generally speaking, no. We screened in March and April, which were the height of COVID, obviously over 550 new felony cases um, and so that's a that's a that's a large amount of felony cases that kept came coming in i mean our intake unit has really been a strength of the office over the last year and a half and they really stepped up and got those cases out the door we're putting new cases those are new felony cases where we have to get all the information figure out what the right charge is figure out who the right defendant is and get them charged in superior court get them on the pack calendar those are being scheduled out till august so it gives you a sense of how much volume has continued to come in i mean overall crime including mr meters might be off slightly, but in terms of the felony matters that, that we're seeing, maybe down a little bit, but, but not dramatically. One area, unfortunately, we're hearing that is going up are domestic violence cases. How concerned are you about that? Yeah. Always concerned about that, you know, I think, I think for obvious reasons. Um, you know, a lot of those cases, again, we don't see because many of them are misdemeanors. We certainly see the felonies and we see the ones that the state police prosecute. You know, those are always challenging cases to, uh, in terms of prevention, you've really got to provide a lot of support for potential victims. And a lot of the, of the advocates and nonprofits are doing tremendous work there in this crisis. Uh, but domestics have always been a difficult nut to crack. Um, and, you know, you'll even see it sometimes, unfortunately, on the homicide side. You know, homicides will go up and there will be, you know, I remember one year we had six or seven domestic homicides a number of years ago. And really thinking about how to prevent that is very different from trying to prevent, you know, sort of a wave of violent crime. So it's a real challenge, but incredibly important to do. Attorney General Peter Nerona, thank you very much for your time this morning. When we come back, Ted Nisi joins me from the State House to talk about this week in news. Stay with us. You're watching Newsmakers. Welcome back to Newsmakers. I'm Tim White. Joining me now live from the State House, as he does every week, is politics and business editor for WPRI 12, Ted Nisi. Ted, welcome back to the show. And as people watch this, um, they're probably watching it mainly on Sunday, which is what? The end of May, right? Because Monday's June 1st, um, I think. June 1st is a big That's day right. <laughs> uh, in Rhode Island. What, what should people expect based on what the governor has said throughout the week about June 1st? 
Well, I think people are going to notice. I, I'd assume people already are noticing signs of, of opening up throughout May. You're seeing, uh, if you drive around some places, you see folks eating outside because outdoor dining is allowed. Uh, I'm sure more of us are hearing from doctors and, and other folks that uh, we need to see that they're available again in person. And I think you're really going to feel that ramp up starting June 1st. You know, uh, I think a lot of us are calling uh, to see about when we can go in for a haircut <laughs> or a dye or whatever people need. Uh, we're going to see retailers allowing more people at once in a store um, indoor dining with up to 50% capacity you know I was talking to a restaurant owner yesterday who said you know don't forget they get the 50% capacity indoors but then some of them didn't have a significant outdoor dining before and that can continue um, so there'll be quite a few restaurant tables available as we get further into summer for those restaurants that are following this so uh, you're gonna see people starting to go back into work I think more frequently um, and then of course I think there'll be a nervous eye and a a lot of cases on the case numbers and seeing whether you know our, our masks and social distancing and the continued you know efforts to, to hold the virus down successful even as people do more or do we see an uptick so I think you know that's what the health officials are going to be watching uh, but I think it's just life's gonna feel a little more normal but still very abnormal and this question might be a little too early to ask you Ted but you know we as we enter phase two June 1st um, you know, people might already be looking ahead to phase three. We get a lot of questions into 12 responds of, all right, have they firmed up weddings yet or, or any of that? Do we have a sense as to what the mm. potential timing to phase three could be? Yes, the governor um, clearly would like to hit phase three uh, around July 1st. Uh, she said, you know, right now she's thinking in terms of one month increments to get from phase to phase. So May was phase one, June will be phase two, it looks like. And then if June goes well, July will be phase three and, and, and onward from there. Uh, I think, again, you know, I think the governor clearly you know first and foremost her team they're looking at the case numbers the hospitalization numbers um, they were very encouraged by seeing those stay be stable or even in decline over the course of May despite reopening around May 9th uh, so I think again they're gonna be watching the same thing in June I think the other thing is we, we all have to remember that the virus has only been around about 90 days in Rhode Island uh, so they're still learning a lot about you know what makes it look at the different advice we've all gotten don't wear a mask now we're all wearing masks um, you know you, you can do this you can't do that who is really at risk I think that's gonna allow them to make more fine-grained choices as we go forward good example this week was youth sports where earlier the governor had sounded like nope no youth sports this summer people in contact etc and now they're saying okay with some safety precautions you can have practices in June and hopefully games by July and I think that's because they're feeling more and more confident that masks social distancing people practicing hygiene uh, does seem to be holding the virus down plus summertime the hope is that there's less spread in summer before we get to the fall yeah and when you hear the governor talk about youth sports she often says you know I'm, I'm putting a lot of trust in you that you're going to follow the rules I'm, I'm you know I'm letting the leash out a, a little bit more and we are seeing an improvement in cases we are seeing an improvement in stats over the past couple of weeks but still Ted a lot of deaths at nursing homes what is the governor saying about that I know she gets asked about it a lot yeah, I mean, it's that has been maybe one of the most striking things to me in May was, you know, if you knew all the data but deaths, you'd say Rhode Island's in a pretty good place. K 
cases down. The positive rate for the tests is, is around 5 to 7% most days recently. That's pretty good. Uh, fewer people in the hospital. And yet deaths as of Thursday, which is most recent data as we stand here uh, taping this morning, were nearly the average for the last seven days was almost at the highest it's been, which would equal what it was at in early May. Um, and, and to me, there's now like kind of two things going on. You have in the in most of the population a, a seemingly stable situation with coronavirus. It's it's not spreading too badly. The precautions are going well. But in the nursing homes, it's just proving, I won't say impossible to, to hold down, but it, it's, it's really tearing through a lot of these places. More than half of the long-term care facilities in Rhode Island have now had at least two cases of coronavirus. Uh, there are some where dozens of residents have died in the last two months because, and I asked the governor about this actually in Thursday's briefing, and, and she said, it's infection control. She said these, these facilities, it is very, very hard to prevent spread of infections. You have, they're in congregate settings, you have shared bathrooms. Uh, these are often very frail, often older people uh, who we know are at the most risk. I mean, here's a stat for you, Tim. I looked the other day. If you're in your 30s in Rhode Island and you catch coronavirus, your chances of dying are like one in 242. Very rare, like 0%. 0.4% uh, fatality rate. If you're in your 90s or older, one in four coronavirus wow. cases is dying uh, patients. And so, you know, it's just, it's, it's devastating to older folks, elderly folks, and especially the frail ones. And so it's just very hard in the nursing homes. We're seeing it. Massachusetts has had an even higher death rate as a share of population, Connecticut. Um, you know, the Northeast, they think part of the problem is when they discharged initially uh, people who'd been hospitalized with COVID into the nursing homes, that allowed it to get in. In some cases, you had workers. It's just, it, the governor called it a perfect storm, and it does seem to be that way, which is not to let officials off the hook by any means for the need to try to, to get their arms around it, but it's, it's proving very difficult, and that's not just in Rhode Island. All right, I want to shift gears here now uh, to the budget. Um, th this is the biggest challenge, without a doubt, facing the General Assembly, but there doesn't seem to be anything new as we talk on this Friday morning. And I just picture House Finance Chairman Marvin Abney sitting in his office, staring at his telephone, hoping Washington, D.C. is going to call and say we're coming to the rescue. Is that your impression of, of what's happening right now? You know, I mean, it's, uh, it, there's maybe a little more activity than that, but not a, not a ton more. There are conversations happening behind the scenes. Uh, the House and Senate Finance Committees have been holding some hearings to get their arms around the budget. But, you know, we had another, the reporters in the briefing had another conversation with the governor about this Wednesday or Thursday. And, you know, she basically said, look, the deficit we're looking at is $900 million for this current year and the new one that starts July 1st without big time money coming in from Washington, uh, the only solution there is going to be large scale layoffs that'll feed down to the cities and towns, teachers, police, etc. Um, certainly not say there isn't anything they could cut, but that's, that's, that's a huge amount of, of the state level revenue. Um, the city only brings in like $4 billion a year in state level revenue, so $900 million off $8 billion over two years, that's a, that's a big chunk of it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there are signals out of Washington that, that there probably will be another stimulus bill at some point from Republicans who are the ones to watch because the Democrats in the House already passed theirs. Um, but, but when and what does it look like and how much money is there for a state like Rhode Island? Those are big open questions. Um, and so it might be that you see them 
pass kind of a, a holdover budget for July, maybe, while they keep waiting for Congress. Let me ask you on that, uh, Ted, when, when you bring that up, these deep cuts. is that a constitutional problem for them mm -hmm. to do that? Um, by, you know, constitutionally, Rhode Island has to have a balanced budget. Um, can they just kind of punt it every month without violating the Constitution? I think there is a way. I, I doubt it's totally simple because you're right, Tim, you have to balance the budget. That's in, that's in statute. Um, but where there's a will, there's a way. And then, of course, <laughs> you know, there's a balanced budget requirement on paper. But, uh, you know, there are always ways to, you know, make it look balanced or say it's balanced right now or whatever. Um, there's the rainy day fund, which has about $200 million in it. But that under the Constitution or statute has to be quickly paid back. So there are options available to tide the state over for a bit longer, but they're not, they're not long, they're, they're barely short-term solutions. You know, they, they just, they need clarity on whether there's more money coming from D.C. And if not, they, they're going to have to start putting pen to paper and figure out what to cut. All right, we got about a minute left here. Um, you reported that the state hired a $20,000 uh, lobby firm to help secure funding, COVID-19 funding in D.C. My first impression when I thought your article was, don't we have a lobby firm in D.C.? It's called the delegation. Um, what is your impression with a minute left of how this lobby firm's going to be used? Yeah, I think uh, a few members of the delegation and their staff had the same reaction. Now, what are you, what are you saying about us if you think you need a lobby firm? Um, you know, they're using Sean Richardson, who was chief of staff, to Patrick Kennedy. He's leading the effort. Um, but, I, you know, I think there's a feeling that, you know, federal money is so important and that, you know, some of the money that's coming in, there's discretion around who gets it, how it gets put around. And so I think there's a hope that if they, if they have someone advocating for them with the agencies on top of the delegation, they can get more. But certainly it, it raised some eyebrows in Rhode Island and in Washington, too, I think. All right, everybody, make sure you go to WPRI.com. Our colleague Eli Sherman put together a great chart on what you can and can't do as we enter June 1st. So make sure you check that out. For Ted Nisi, I'm Tim White. Thank you for watching, and we'll see you next week on Newsmakers.